course, continuing in our study of the gospel according to Mark. Um, as we concluded last week, Messiah Yeshua has been asked a series of questions that weren't really questions. Some of them were a trap. Some were an, an attempt to make him stumble. Some were an attack on him. Uh, they were insincere questions. And you remember the, the policy that Yeshua had that you and I should have? It goes like this. Yeshua never gave a straight answer to a crooked question. And neither should you. So now we're continuing in Mark chapter 12. I invite you to uh, turn to Mark chapter 12. Again, we want to welcome all of you. And we want to welcome those of you who are watching on YouTube or Facebook or the Shema website. We're glad to have you all here today. Uh, we're in Mark chapter 12. We are reading out of the New Living Translation, the NLT. So just bear that in mind. And I'm going to pick up in verse 28. One of the teachers of religious law, Torah teacher, was standing there listening to the debate. He realized that Yeshua had answered well, so he asked, of all the commandments, which is the most important? Yeshua replied, the most important commandment is this. Listen, O Israel, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, all your mind and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. No other commandment is greater than these. The teacher of religious law replied, Well said, Rabbi. You have spoken the truth by saying that there is only one God and no other. And I know it is important to love him with all my heart and all my understanding and all my strength and to love my neighbor as myself. This is more important than to offer all of the burnt offerings and sacrifices required in the law. Realizing how much the man understood, Yeshua said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So the teacher of religious law, that means he was a Torah teacher. He was an expert in the particulars of the five books of Moses, the Torah. You know, um, this kind of goes along with the, the parasha this morning. We need to be careful in the way we answer people when questions are put to us. Because, uh, and we need to not be hasty. We really need to be thoughtful in our answers because frequently others are listening in to those conversations, right? There's a whole thing called the ministry of overheard conversation. You know, you'd be talking to your friend and you know there's others around and you might emphasize the point and you know the Lord was really good to me this week, right? Because you know they're going to overhear. But, you know, today, especially, and Rabbi Jerry, I know, is going to appreciate this, all the interaction that goes on on social media, there is a watching world. We need to be very careful and very thoughtful in how we answer people and even whether or not we ought to give an answer. Messiah Yeshua quotes not just the Shema, but you notice he also quotes the Viahavta, 
right? You shall love the Lord your God. Because the Shema, if you think about it, isn't a commandment. It's a statement of eternal fact. There is one God, one and only one God. That's not a command. That's, that's just saying what's true. The command is what follows it, and you shall love him, right? That's the actual commandment. Now, neither Yeshua nor the Torah teacher negated the other 611 commandments. The rabbis have codified it into what are considered 613 commandments, 365 negative imperatives, 248 positive imperatives. But uh, neither Yeshua nor the Torah teacher are negating the other 611. It's just that these two commandments, to love the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our might, and to love our neighbor as ourself, these are the bedrock of all of the rest of them. They're all either a horizontal thing about how we deal with one another or a vertical thing, how we are relating to our Father in heaven. Now, what's interesting here is the way the Torah teacher responds to Yeshua. He actually renders a judgment on Yeshua's teaching. Well said, Rabbi, you are right, and blah, blah, blah. If he knew who he was talking to, he would have understood what audacity, what chutzpah. Wow, you answered really well. You think? He's only the Lord of heaven and earth, that's all. Uh, but it shows that by rendering a judgment on Yeshua's teaching, the Torah teacher saw himself either as equal to or even perhaps above Yeshua. The Torah teacher affirmed that love for God and love for one's neighbor, it's more weighty than the sacrificial system, yet doesn't replace it. Warm feelings do not nullify obedience. Boy, how many times have you heard somebody say, oh, you know, all, all of those, you know, commandments and directives and all those things, you know, it's really all about loving each other and being nice and kind to each other. Um, not quite. Not quite. Warm fuzzies are not a substitute for obedience to God's word. Uh, there are corollary passages, those of you taking notes. It's always wise to take note. Uh, those of you taking notes, you'll want to jot this down. Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17. Isaiah 11, excuse me, Isaiah 1, verses 11 through 17. And Hosea 6, 6. I'm not going to repeat them because you can always go back and listen to this later. Why do I bring up those passages? Those passages deal with integrity versus religious observance. Those are all verses that talk about where the Lord may say something like, do I have as much delight in sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Some rabbis have used passages like that to argue that, well, we, we really don't need to bring the sacrifices anymore. I mean, we don't have a temple, but God already said that he's not interested in the sacrifices. He wants a broken and a contrite spirit. Uh, yeah, there's a problem with that. God never said, I don't want those things. What he said is, I don't want hypocrisy. I don't want you bringing sacrifices and offerings and going through the religious pretense, and then you're living your life 
in a rebellious, sinful way. You're not fooling me. You may fool other people, but you're not fooling me. So he's looking for integrity. Uh, note that Yeshua said the Torah teacher was not far from the kingdom of heaven. He didn't say you're in. He said you're not far. However much knowledge of the Torah you have, you still need to surrender your life to Messiah Yeshua if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven. All the knowledge of Torah in the world is not a substitute and will never replace the need for everybody, Jew and Gentile, boy and girl, black and white, slave and free, fill in the categories. Every one of us needs to transfer our loyalties to Jesus the Messiah. It is the fact of Yeshua's identity, not just as the promised Messiah, but also the Son of God that Mark highlights. And this kind of transitions into the next segment. But before we go on, uh, Rabbi Jerry, some thoughts about this section. The only thought I really want to maybe uh, talk about for a moment is, you know, the effect he says that he is not far away. And I think that's very important to understand. Well, why was he not far away? He was not far away because on an intellectual level, he understood these commandments were, in a sense, more important than the sacrificial system, which would have probably been shocking to some of the audience. But he is still not within the kingdom because he only addresses Messiah Yeshua as rabbi. And as you pointed out in the way he conducts himself with him, he either thinks he's equal to or possibly superior to him. So for us, you know, this is important that intellectual knowledge does not get you into the kingdom of God. And in fact, it is more important to know who Messiah Yeshua is than to be an expert in Scripture. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't become more familiar with Scripture as time goes by, but the most important thing is our relationship and our understanding and our understanding of our position with the Lord. All right, well said. Let's go on. Let's uh, resume our reading at verse 35. Whose son is the Messiah. Since that Torah teacher seemed not yet to get it, here's what we read. Later, as Yeshua was teaching the people in the temple, he asked, why do the teachers of religious law claim that the Messiah is the son of David? For David himself, speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies beneath your feet. Since David himself called the Messiah my Lord, how can the Messiah be his son? The large crowd listened to him with great delight. Now this exchange was in response to Yeshua being challenged by the Jewish religious authorities. All those... All those... Uh, Questions that weren't really questions. They had asked a series of crooked, insincere questions designed to trap him. Now he had a challenge of his own for them. Whose son is the Messiah? <laughs> the religious leaders argued that the Messiah would be the son of David. Well, in terms of ancestry, that's true. But Yeshua now highlights the serious deficiency in their understanding and he does so by citing scripture. If the Messiah is 
the son of David. Then how does David call him Lord? The Lord said to my Lord. And David wrote that by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So there's no, there's no, um, there's no um, defying that. There's no disagreeing with that. A couple of things here that I took from this, Rabbi Jerry. Um, number one, Messiah Yeshua considers the Psalms to be scripture. That might seem obvious to you and me. Not everybody does. And not everybody did, even at that time. He quotes Psalm 110, verse 1, and notice that he considers David its author. So Yeshua isn't like some of those, these liberal theologians who, who seem to question everything. They question the authorship of this. They question the authorship of that. Oh, I don't think David really wrote that. Yeshua considered David to be its author. Therefore, we ought to consider David its author. He regards Psalm 110 as messianic, um, as referring to himself. So we should consider Psalm 110 messianic as referring to Yeshua. And I dare say most, most of his audience uh, considered Psalm 110 a messianic promise. But again, not everybody. And within Psalm 110, we're told that Messiah will be exalted to the right hand of Adonai. The right hand of Adonai, the place of greatest and highest honor. Only one person in all of creation will occupy that place. And it's God the Son, Messiah Yeshua. And, uh, and in the process, Messiah's enemies will be humiliated and defeated. And it says in Psalm 110 that it's Adonai who will accomplish these things himself. Also, Messiah Yeshua considers the scriptures to be divinely inspired. The Bible isn't just some book. It isn't a book of recommendations and suggestions. It isn't a book of fables and myths. It is real history. It is truth. And it is authoritative. And I love how Yeshua's logic is so impeccable. So the Messiah, whose son is he? Right? Matthew has the religious leaders answering almost as though on autopilot. Oh, he's the son of David. <laughs> and now he's got him. Right? He silenced his opponents, but the crowd delighted in his teaching. What a contrast. The Jewish religious leaders are upset. They're uncomfortable. He's put them on the hot seat. They didn't have an answer. They're embarrassed. Meanwhile, the rest of the crowd is going, hey, man, this is great. This is really great. That contrast we've been reading throughout Mark. The people, the common people, loved and appreciated and hung on Messiah Yeshua's words. The Jewish religious leaders always jealous for power, always trying to, you know, prevent anybody from threatening their authority. They're constantly nitpicking and trying to find fault with him. What a contrast. Rabbi Jerry, thoughts? Just one that this whole teaching also confirms the second, sort of the major theme in the second half of Mark's gospel of reorienting the disciples and the Jewish audience to 
who exactly the Messiah is. The idea that he will have to die and be resurrected. And here we see, you know, they understood Messiah as a descendant of David, commonly understood at this time. But Messiah Yeshua, through this teaching, is saying, actually, he's more than just, you know, from the lineage of David. This is more than just somebody from David's bloodline. In fact, the Messiah isn't inferior to David, but superior to him. And the implication there is that he is something more than just a human descendant. He is fully God. He is fully man. We have hints of that here in this. All right. Why don't you uh, take us into the next section? All righty. Verse 38, Yeshua also taught, Beware of these teachers of religious law, for they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces, and how they love the seats of honor in the synagogues and the head table at banquets. Yet they shamelessly cheat widows out of their property and then pretend to be pious by making long prayers in public. Because of this, they will be more severely punished. So here we have religious teachers or scribes being denounced for specific behaviors. Now again, just like as he deals with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, he deals with them, particularly their leadership as a group. But as we've seen, they're not homogenous, right? We see an example of a scribe in this very passage, or in this very chapter, I should say, that is not, close, is not far from the kingdom of God, Right? So they're not all, we shouldn't just use shorthand and say every single scribe was doing this. But clearly this was a major issue and was clearly an issue within the leadership of the scribes. So what does he uh, go after them about? First, they like to parade around in flowing robes and receive respectful greetings. These robes would have drawn attention to them so that they stood out, right? So that you could easily distinguish them when passing through a crowd. Now, a lot of times we use fashion this way as well, right? When we do evangelism, we wear shirts that say, Jesus made us kosher. Okay, they're designed in such a way as to attract attention. A lot of people do this with their outfits. And so the Torah teachers did the same thing, but their desire was for people to notice them and not only notice them, but then to respectfully Greet them. You were expected to basically bow down to a Torah teacher when you saw them coming. Show them great respect. Now, we don't want to take this verse and mean it to say, well, this is Yeshua teaching that everybody should basically dress like Puritans, right? Only blacks and whites, no colors allowed. It's not about banning any sort of colorful dress or outfit. Instead, we should understand why we are dressing a certain way. Their outfits were chosen because of pride and to make sure they were seen by others so they could be treated with respect. If we are dressing in whatever way we dress, colorful or not, in a way that people will notice us to show us respect out of pride, that's an issue, Messiah Yeshua is saying. Second, they loved seats of honor in the synagogue and at banquet tables. In the synagogue back then, as is today, the most important and prestigious seats are in the front. Now, we always joke here at Shema, and when you go to other churches, you see this as well. Everybody wants to sit not in the front, but in the back. But in a synagogue or a temple, you sit in the front is a sign of prestige, 
And in many older synagogues, it's like your family seat. If you've been there for generations, your family pays dues, that section of that pew is reserved for your family. If somebody were to sit there, you would go up and politely maybe ask them to move. That's how serious it is. So they want the good seats. They want to be at the head of the table. They want to be acknowledged and shown prestige. Now, outwardly, they seem very deserving of their prestige because of their long prayers in public. They seem so pious. They seem so holy. They seem so knowledgeable. Of course, you should treat them with respect. Of course, you should give them the best seats and the best things. That's the outward appearance. But the Lord sees beneath the surface. And Yeshua knew that these so-called teachers were fully and heinously hypocrites. One example given, which we will connect to our next section, is how they cheat widows out of their property. But what does this mean? Scripture makes it clear that widows are one of the most vulnerable groups in society, along with orphans. There's many passages about taking care of widows and orphans, both in the Old and New Testaments. In the ancient world, being a widow was difficult. It was an agrarian society. You were expected to work farmland. Widows typically had less money and little societal power, women in general in these societies. They literally needed a man to, to function in society unless they were rich. Even in America, back in the 1850s, with the first public post office in New York City back in the 1850s, it was like scandalous, the idea that women, women could now go to the post office and pick up their mail themselves and their correspondence, that a man wouldn't be doing it for them, that they would go out in public into a rough place like the post office and pick up their mail. That's the 1850s in America. How much more back then? So during biblical times, even if women were wealthy, it was expected that a man would handle their financial affairs. Scribes were considered trustworthy. They're Torah teachers, right? They're pious. They're religious. And so it created a perfect opportunity for someone to take advantage of a vulnerable widow. And this still happens today. This happens sometimes with people who are lawyers or doctors who get into a place of trust with typically vulnerable women. But this also happens with so-called pastors who prey on the vulnerable, such as widows, take control of their finances, and use these trusting people to make themselves rich. Prosperity teachers are well known for doing this. Yeshua warns that their hypocrisy through abusing their position will lead to much harsher punishments. They know what they are doing is wrong, but they do not care. Rabbi Glenn? Yeah, very good. Um, there really, there are, you know, it's, people like that today. It's easy for us to point the finger at the Pharisees and the Torah teachers as being narcissistic and greedy and cruel. But this obviously doesn't apply just to them. Uh, there are, as you said, Rabbi Jerry, religious leaders today, equally greedy, equally egotistical, uh, and ruthless. You know, these prosperity teachers that have these TV shows and fly around in their private jets and have their multiple mansions, 
you know, the vast majority of the people who donate uh, to their organizations are, are on the poor side. And it's, it's shameless. And Yeshua warns that their judgment will be more severe. James said the same thing about teachers. Even just the content of our teaching, we are going to be held to a stricter standard. I would not want to be in their shoes. But we need to be careful also. Do we say to ourselves or to the Lord, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, especially those Pharisees. Oops. Right? Uh, that can easily apply to us as well. All right, Jerry, keep going. All right, connected to this passage, we continue on. Verse 41, Yeshua sat down near the collection box of the temple and watched as the crowds dropped in their money. Many rich people put in large amounts. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two small coins. Yeshua called his disciples to him and said, I tell you the truth, this poor widow has given more than all the others who are making contributions. For they gave a tiny part of their surplus, but she, poor as she is, has given everything she had to live on. This widow deposited two small coins, the lowest value coins that were used, each of which was worth one sixty-fourth of a day's wages. You do some napkin math, it's basically about $2 today. Each of these coins are worth about a buck today in today's money. And this is all she had. This single widow is giving sacrificially and trusting in the Lord to provide for her by faith. In contrast, many rich people walk up and give from their excess. Let's talk about this. And I think more than prosperity teachers, this might make us a little bit uncomfortable. There are a few lessons for us in the story that finishes Messiah's public ministry. First, that the Lord honors sacrificial giving. The point is not that we must always be giving the Lord every dollar that we have, but that giving sacrificially is a demonstration of real faith. The Lord calls on us to sacrifice for his kingdom. Messiah Yeshua, this is the principle laid out in Scripture, Messiah Yeshua laid down his life to ransom, to purchase us all. Is giving some of our time, treasures, and talents too high of a calling or a command for us? You know, everyone in society saw the scribes walking around and praying loudly. People knew who were rich, and when they were publicly giving large sums, the Sadaka boxes, there was like basically, I think, 12 of them, according to the Talmud, for different offerings, several of them for these maybe benevolence, free will offerings, which is most likely what they were depositing their money into. This was done in a, in a public way, giving large sums. They knew. Today in synagogues, uh, this is true of a lot of synagogues and temples, those who give large sums get a nice large plaque. You go into most temples and synagogues, you see it's you know, the uh, Weinstein Wing or the Goldberg Gym or something like that, or this fund in memory of this person. It always has somebody's name attached to it. Sometimes this is done in churches as well. People know who gives. But no one around, though, saw this single widow giving, except for one person, the Lord. 
the Lord saw this widow, and he sees each one of us when we give in secret, and is pleased not when we give from our excess, which is really another way of saying our last, but when we give from our best and our first, right? Giving from excess, you know, this is tied to stewardship, right? So giving from excess means you have in some way, whether formally or informally, thought through your budget for whatever period of time you're thinking. You're saying, okay, I need this much money to do all these things. Okay, here's how much money I have minus those numbers. Here's what I have left over. And from that excess, I will choose which and what to give to the Lord or to other groups as well. Instead of saying, well, maybe, you know, the Lord, the giving to the Lord should be part of the top of that number, not the bottom of it. That's what is really meant here, I think, by sacrificial giving. And people, when we talk about this, get really wrapped up in numbers. But this passage tells us very clearly it's not about the dollar amounts. You didn't say, he says, because he, she gave 10%, or instead of 10%, she was giving 20%. Messiah Yeshua, the Lord, isn't worked up about the exact numbers. It's about her intent and her heart that she was clearly giving in a sacrificial manner. So that's a lesson for us. There is one other deeper lesson that ties this passage to the previous one, and the next passage, which we're not going on to in Mark 13 yet, but talks about the destruction of the temple. And that is that judgment is coming to the temple and our people. This has been a major theme in this section of Mark. Why? Well, we have another reason here with this particular widow. Because our sinfulness and our rejection of the Lord. This widow, who may very well have been one of the widows defrauded, by the scribes in the previous passage, okay, is giving her last two dollars. Now, we can't say that for certain, and we shouldn't, but it is interesting these things are tied directly together. Regardless whether she is specifically one of these widows, she represents widows. She represents widows who have been defrauded and not taken care of. The Mosaic covenant strongly affirmed that widows were to be taken care of. And if you are an expert in the Torah and a religious leader or a temple person, you should be taking care of this widow. Their failure to do so, and not only not a failure to neglect them, they're neglecting them, but also exploiting them, is a sign that God's judgment is right to be coming soon. This is another reason why God is about to judge the temple and the religious leadership and all of Israel. This widow is the only one in this story with real faith. And the disregard leaders and people have shown her are a part of the reason why we're going to see that judgment in Mark 13. Rabbi Glenn? Um, a lot of times pastors and messianic rabbis are afraid to bring up the subject of giving or tithing or what have you because they're afraid, oh, people are going to get upset and then they're going to leave. My attitude is if people are going to leave because of something like that, it's the right people that left. Uh, but concerning this, um, she gave all that she had. There's a sense of recklessness, reckless abandon in her giving. God, I'm giving it all to you. Um, I, know, I know you can take care of me. 
And there's, there can be a joy in being a little bit reckless. Um, I'm not suggesting you give your entire fortune to Shema. It, it has nothing to do with that. But there's a joy that comes from that kind of abandon. Um, Moish Rosen once said that if you want to kind of kickstart your walk with the Lord and get a little extra jolt of joy, do give something valuable away or just give something that's very valuable away. Um, and again, it's not the amount, it's the proportion, it's the heart attitude, and she's got the right attitude. Um, and honestly, if you want to know a person's priorities, if you want to know what their values are, look at how they use their checkbook and their wallet. Talk is cheap. We can all talk a good Christian talk. But really, how a person uses their finances shows you where they really put their priorities. And uh, so, uh, let's see. Also, um, don't call attention to yourself as they were wont to do. Uh, give discreetly. It's enough that God knows. And I like how you pointed that out, Jerry. The one person whose opinion mattered took note of what this widow did. So rest assured that God knows, you know, he knows the intent of your heart. Maybe that makes you uncomfortable at times. But sometimes it also gives you great comfort. No one else needs to know. It's enough that your Father in heaven sees what's done in secret. I like the way we switched things up years ago here at Shema. We no longer pass offering plates. There's a box back there. You give, you give discreetly. Nobody else needs to know. And really, that's how it ought to be. But I want to be like her in being reckless, in just going overboard with trust in the Lord. Not easy to do. It's easy to talk about. Not easy to do. Well, thank you, Rabbi Jerry. Thank you. Thank you.